bit of a Bible back on page, what was it, 700 and 749. If you've got that, keep it open in front of you because the last thing you need is C. Casey's ideas on life. You need to go check everything I say by that Bible because if I'm telling you something other than what's in the Bible, I'm not serving you well. And I'm trying to think of a title that would sum up how we explain what was happening. And the very best one I could come up with was, my mate has lost the plot. My mate is weird. He was fine, or she was fine at one point, kind of a sensible conversation with them, and then not long after that, something happened that meant it just got a bit awkward. So I have uh, the joy of going to funerals, um, hardly a joy, uh, quite a lot because I take them, and then I always have the joy and privilege of being able to go to the family celebration afterwards, and almost every funeral I've been to, I've had the people who are closest to uh, the person who's passed away, uh, they, they come and say, oh, we'll invite you back, come and have food with us afterwards, but watch out for, because every family has at least one weird great-uncle, or rather unhinged um, nephew, or something like that, and they're the ones that you sort of, you're glad they're there, but you, it's difficult to take them too seriously. And this message here could be called, my mate, it's a bit like that, my mate has gone weird. Well, where did it start for all these people? We were introduced to a whole stack of people. We were introduced to, well, John the Baptist. We've heard a bit about him, and he's pointing some way. And then we've got Philip, and we've got Peter, or Simon, whose name gets changed to Peter. There's an Andrew in there. There's a Nathaniel in there. And by the end of it, they've all lost the plot. They've all got a bit weird. Where did it all start? Answer? It started with a real encounter with a real person. Who was the person? Jesus. He's got that much power that he can make people weird. If that's actually what is happening there. And each of those people who were in that story, they had something of a new sp a spiritual change come into their life. There was a, a renewing. They, 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 weren't, they were the same person, but they weren't quite the same person the next day. A real encounter. And by the way, we're supposed to understand, if you look at all the detail as you go through the story, we're supposed to understand that this is an eyewitness in, in, uh, encounter. In fact, later on, John, the dude who wrote all this stuff down, he said at the end of John's Gospel, he said, these things are written that you may believe. That you may believe. I've put it as evidence, a testimony, so any rational or reasonable person can make up their own mind as to whether it is true or not. But like I say, it's about not just a real testimony, it's about a real person. And I'm so glad to tell you this. Because if you're anything like me, you know that as much as you wished you had the power to affect real change in your life, you know that try, try, and try again, it's really quite difficult. Sometimes we want to kind of connect to some sort of spiritual truth that will really make a difference. And your suspicions that it's harder than you think often come true. If we want a spiritual reality, and who wouldn't here today, if we want a spiritual reality in our life, trying hard doesn't cut it. Thinking of a plan doesn't cut it. Hiding in front of the telly, hoping it'll all get better, well, it ain't going to work, is it? But here what we find is that for every man, woman, boy, girl, person on planet Earth, you can find spiritual reality, and the best part is, it's found in a person. It's not that you, you, some of you are standing there, you're like, wait for it, wait for it. He's going to go and tell us ten power principles of how I can change my life. No! 
encourage you to have an encounter to do what these guys do is come and see, have a look at who Jesus is. You need to have an encounter with a real person because it's personal. A personal encounter with the one who has ultimate spiritual reality and his name is Jesus. And imagine if that happened to you. Imagine if that happened to you. Your mates would think you've lost the plot, wouldn't they? They'd think you were a bit weird. And so let me be clear, in this bit of John's Gospel, the Apostle John is writing this story to introduce us to who Jesus is. So if you've never had a chance to really think about who Jesus is, you're going to find that in just the next few minutes. But more than that, it's, it's to show us what happens when you meet him and why. It'll help us make sense of what's going on in a minute when we have three people stand up here and talk about how Jesus made a difference in, in their lives. It talks about how you can know you've met God, what you can expect to happen in your life if you become a follower of the Lord Jesus. I suppose it's these two things, isn't it? Whenever we buy into something in life, we want to know two things, don't we? Number one, is it true? And number two, does it make any difference? Okay? I suppose I could say it posh way the way the philosophers do. Okay? Um, Is it intellectually coherent and is it experientially satisfying? That sounds good, doesn't it? Is it true? Does it work? And I want you to get a sense of that. Right, let's, let's, get, let's, let's, let's start in the story. Right, okay, four people, or the four encounters, okay? Uh, here we go, starting at verse 35 to 39. Let me read it, follow it along just to check, okay? The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, what are you saying? That's not what you said. Where are you staying? Makes a big difference. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour, which is 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the way they used to count it. Okay, right, so here's this dude, John the Baptist, who's already met with Jesus and had his life change, and all he's doing is he's pointing the finger like that, but look at how he points the finger. He's got two of his followers with him, and he says to two of his followers, there. Now, you need to be pretty confident of something to send your followers away to somebody else. You need to have had quite a big change go on in you, because, I mean, let's face it, if you're a leader, you want to gather as many people as you possibly can, not send them to somebody else. So the person he's pointing at must be pretty significant. So what does he say? Here we go, verse 35, verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, or in the old version, behold, which means more than take a glance. It means when you behold something, you look at it and try and figure out what it means. You take it deep within you. He says, look, the Lamb of God. Now, that sounds all scary and religious, because in the Bible, the lambs were a victim. A lamb was a victim who suffered in the place of another so that they could go free. It was set up in the the whole temple system. The idea was that, well, the the teaching of the Bible is that what we know to be true is true, that you and I are not the people we wish we could be, should be, or ought to be. And as hard as we try, so often in our life there are stains and marks and things that expose us for what we really like. 
And a system was set up to, for people who felt a sense of uncleanness and knew that they weren't right before God. They said, well listen, the lamb will get it. The lamb will be the victim. We'll take the knot. We'll have the, its blood will be spilt in my place so that I can be right with God. In other words, this is the answer to the world's biggest problem, a lamb. The world's biggest problem is, the world is the way it is, because God is at a distance. And the reason God is at a distance is because that's where we wanted him, thank you very much. And that shows something about who we are and what we're like as people. So if the biggest and greatest command in the Bible is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, then the worst sin in the Bible must be treat God with utter indifference and build my life as if he means nothing. And here, John the Baptist is going, look over there. There is the answer to your biggest, most serious problem that you haven't got an answer for. But here is the answer. Here is one who will come and be the lamb for you, who will take and pay the wrong. Who when God charges you with wrong and puts it to your account, the lamb says, put it on my account, I will carry the cost. I will, as Jesus does by the end of the gospel, die in your place, carry your sin, I will pay your penalty, so the only thing you need to know is pardon and forgiveness. I love those two words, pardon and forgiveness. And this is where it starts. Some people think, oh dear, Christianity starts with being told what I must do better. No, the place where Christianity starts is the declaration that you and I can know pardon and forgiveness before a perfect and holy God. As I was thinking about what to say to you today, I was thinking to myself, because I know you well enough, and I know from speaking with people well enough to know that there will be people in this room who would like to know forgiveness. You don't have to wave your hands, you don't have to jump up off your seats, but there will be people in this room who want to know forgiveness. They say to themselves, can I really be forgiven? I can't even forgive myself, let alone knowing that God could forgive me and put me right with him. I never cease to be surprised by the burdens that people carry. God knows that you need forgiveness and pardon more than anything else. He knew it before you knew it. And Jesus comes along as God's answer. And so John the Baptist goes, Behold the Lamb of God. Perhaps you've just got used to background guilt. Perhaps you never thought it was possible. Today, according to the gospel message, you can meet Jesus in such a way as to know you are forgiven. Once and for all. Now that is life changing. You know what that means? If, if you are forgiven by God, it means that you will no longer relate to him on the basis of your performance. Isn't that a relief? I try to relate to my wife on the basis of my performance, as if I could deserve and earn her love. I get to about 7.30 in the morning before I failed that one. The only hope in my marriage is her unconditional love towards me. Here we have news that God says, I know the worst about you. I'm going to find a way that your sin may be forgiven, so that you can relate to me on the basis of who I am, not on the basis of what you do. Now that is good news. And that is why John the Baptist is going, Oi, look at him. And suddenly, for those of us who've received this, you'll know this, won't you? When you receive Christ's forgiveness, whereas before there were other things that were the defining mark of who you were, the things that I try to achieve in life, 
maybe the ambitions and goals that I'm pursuing, maybe the things that have happened to me and done to me, they seem to have a lot of power over me. I wake up in the morning thinking about them. I go to bed worrying about them at the end of the, uh, the, end of the day. And suddenly you receive the mercy and love of Jesus and know that whatever else I've done or people have done to me, I know I've got a lamb. I know I've got pardon. I know I've got forgiveness. And you become a new person. That's on offer when you meet this Jesus. But that's not all. Let's go on to the next one, okay? Let's have a look at verse 40 through to 42. This is where Andrew, who's one of the two who follows um, and asks about that, uh, Andrew uh, passed it on to Peter. So let's have a look. Can you see down there, verses 40 to 42? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother and tell him, uh, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, that's Peter, or sorry, Simon. Uh, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, or translated, is Peter, or literally, Rocky. And then Peter means the rock. Rocky. Yeah? Okay, so what's going on here? I must admit, I would have loved to have watched this. So Andrew, the brother, comes up. I don't know what time of day it is at this point. Um, you know, though it says about the, the four, I'm not quite sure when it was. Uh, he's like, yo, bro, how are you? How are the kids? How was work today? Fine. And Peter, sorry, Simon is looking at him and going, what's going on? There's something different. I know you are going to believe this. I've met the anointed saviour, Christ Messiah. Right. Okay, did you stop your medication? Hmm. And so, Andrew says, come. See, we've got this thing called chronological snobbery that makes us think that people who were older than us or lived in a century before us were just by, by very nature more dumb than us. And they couldn't spot somebody who was a nut job. Of course they could. They lived with people. And so Simon goes and, well... Uh, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, of all the things he could have said, he didn't even start with hello. He starts with, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, and translated Peter, Rocky. In other words, didn't even say hello. I'm changing your name. How would you feel? Welcome Derek at the door. Derek, good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. You're going to be called Bob from now on. Okay. Uh, the third last thing that Derek would say to me is, who do you think you are? And that's a brilliant question, isn't it? Because if you think you can rename somebody, it's saying that you think that you have got total authority over them. Now, what is this telling us? It tells us this. You get to see Jesus not on your terms, on his. Do you get that? He is so big... He is so significant. He is the Messiah. He is so big that he even gets to give you a new name, if so he chooses. Now, I think we sometimes get a bit worried about this, because what we've been told here is that Jesus will do everything for you or nothing for you. Think about that for a second. You can't sort of choose which bit of Jesus you want to take. 
he comes and says, I know what your life needs, and for Simon it was a change of name, which basically meant a change of destiny. I'm going to take out every last bit of your life, Simon, I'm going to make it mine, and I'm going to use it, and you are going to be the rock on which I build this church. You're not even going to recognize yourself in 10 or 15 years from now, because I'm the Lord, and when I come near you, I'm either going to take everything or nothing. And so some of you are sitting there, and you're already thinking, oh, dear me, this sounds rather serious. And I'm like, yeah, this is Jesus. He's either Lord or he's not. He's not somebody who's like a self-help guru who you go to to say, do you know, Jesus, I, I know I, this is me, but there's this bit of my life, and I need, need a little bit of help here. Could you just help me? And then scarper. No. Jesus comes in and says, I know you from top to bottom. You need a total transformation, so much so that it's like having a new name, and I am going to come and do that in you. I know you. I have a purpose for your life. So, let me make this clear to you and to me. In each case, when somebody is confronted with the claim of Jesus, and he gets busy in somebody's life, things get removed. He claims you with no apology. He doesn't negotiate. There's no nonsense. Come here. And that makes total sense, doesn't, doesn't it? Because just a few verses before this, John the Apostle was saying, I've seen the one who made the very world that you're standing on right now. Now, I'm not a scientist. I did an engineering degree. and I struggle with science, but I found some scientific stuff that if I get this even slightly wrong, Joe, who did astrophysics, will call me out on later. I learned that this, this week, well actually I knew this bit this week, the other bit I didn't know. Do you, do you know how far the sun is from, from, from the earth? Shut up Joe. How far? 93 million miles. Okay. Now imagine that 93 million miles is the thickness of this bit of paper. Do you know how far it is to the next star beyond the sun? So this is the distance from here to the sun. How many more pieces of paper would I need to get to the nearest star? I'll tell you, I'd need a stack seven foot high. That's just to get to the next star. Did you know that there's lots and lots of stars, gazillions, that's a very technical phrase, gazillions of stars in our universe, but it's to go, sorry, uh, sorry, galaxy, I'll get this right. Did you know that from one side of the galaxy to the other side of the galaxy, with all the gazillion stars in, if you want to measure that distance, it wouldn't be seven foot of this, it would be 300 mile high stack of paper. Are you beginning to get an idea for how big the galaxy is? And by the way, there's millions of galaxies in the universe. Jesus made them. So if he comes along and wants to rename you, you say, yes, sir. You don't negotiate. So, where did we get to? We've seen these two. Let me just check. I haven't missed anything else. No, I haven't missed anything else. Let's go on to the next one. Here we go. Let's have a look at the next person. And this is, this is probably my favourite. Uh, up down at verse... Uh, you see there, starting at verse 43. And it's just one sentence. <laughs> this is brilliant. The next day... Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, which was sort of like viewed as the armpit of the country. It was sort of like Hull, that kind of, you know, not very sorry from Hull. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and all it says is these next what, eight words or so. Finding Philip, who's this new guy, I don't know where he was, he was round about, he got relationships with it, or was from the same town as the other guys. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Have it. 
follow me. Now this isn't something, ladies, younger teenage girls, that I'd encourage. If you have a strange man come towards you, who you've not met before, uh, who seems to have a strong and powerful pa uh, personality, and is particularly bossy, and he says, follow me, please walk in the opposite direction. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Okay, now I've got six daughters, that will be a lesson I'll be giving them. But what I love about this is just how quick it is. Follow me. And what does Philip do? He follows. Was it that he had some sort of mental deficiency and was stupid? I don't think so. I think what we're supposed to see here is that Jesus, when he speaks, stuff happens. But more than that, because what I actually want you to notice, and this will tell you something about what Jesus is like, I want you to notice what doesn't get said. He marches up to Philip, and if all the evidence is, is the same, he knows what Philip's like, he knows his background, he knows the score about him, he can see him inside and out, and all he does is he goes, follow me. What doesn't he say? He doesn't say, show me your CV. He doesn't say, I saw when you stole that biscuit out of the biscuit tin when you were 15 years old. He doesn't say, listen, really, I'm looking for people to be gathered around me who've got potential. I'm about to start a world-changing movement, and I only want the cream. I want the best of the best. Do you measure up, Philip? No. Jesus never starts there with where, what you bring to the deal. What does this tell us? This is so important. Please don't miss this. It's very humiliating. The only way you can get connected to God is through his mercy and his grace. Being saved is what the Bible calls it. Being saved has got nothing to do with anything you bring to the deal. It's got everything to do with Jesus. Jesus has the power to be able to look at anybody, no matter what their background is, no matter what their levels of potential are, and say, follow me. Because the whole deal is not dependent on them. It's all dependent on him. So often many of you will think, and I've bumped into this plenty of times, I'll say, do you know what, I like the idea of finding out a little bit more about who Jesus is, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll just get myself in order before I think about doing that. Don't put your hand up, but if you've been there, this idea that I have to clean myself up before, if there is a God, he'll give me any kind of attention at all. No. Oi. Follow me. So if you're the sort of person who's sitting there and you're thinking, oh, let's do a thought experiment, we'll do it this way. Uh, if you were to die tonight, and please don't, especially this number because I couldn't do that many funerals, uh, if you were to die tonight and you were at these imaginary pearly gates and somebody was there with a big book saying, who are you and why should I be let in? What would you say? I'm not an evident fan. <laughs> uh, I, I, I tried to do right by my kids. I paid my taxes. I recycled. I wasn't as judgmental as her next door, even though by saying it you're showing you judge. Anyway, what I, this, I, that. Listen, if your answer starts with the word I, it reveals that you think that you can bring something to the deal. Jesus just said, follow me. He claimed him. And it had got nothing to do with Philip. That's humiliating, isn't it? Because um, I really want to believe that the people I've got good relationships 
with or in my job, the reason I've got my job is because I bring something to the deal. I'm really protective of this. To become a Christian is to become somebody who has been humbled by the reality that you're not the person you wish you were and you need a saviour. So please, can I apologise on behalf of every proud and critical person who claims to be a Christian who has upset and offended you? Because when they were, they either weren't a Christian or they were forgetting that the only thing they've had in their life was, follow me. This is wonderfully liberating. It means that we can be honest about ourselves, possibly for the very first time, and we can do it with a background of knowing that Jesus is for and with us. Listen, there's one more to go to before we wrap up. You're doing really well and sticking with me. This one's a bit, um, a bit of an odd one, so I'll try and explain it reasonably clearly. Uh, let's read from verses 44 through to 51. So, Philip, follow me, done it. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip uh, found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, you need to understand that if they're all from Galilee, you tend to be sort of envious or, or critical of the local area that's in your domain, but not the same. So, let me give you an example. If you were brought up in Speak, and you were naughty, you were threatened of being moved to where? Toxteth. And vice versa. So what we've got going on here is we've got Nathaniel going, what? I'm from Toxteth, and he's from Speak, can anything good come out of speak? That's what he's saying. Do you understand? Okay, so. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asks. Come and see. If you notice, that's the second time. Just come and have a look. Jesus will speak for himself. Come and have a look. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And we think that's a weird sentence, and you'd be right, but that sentence is found in the hymn book of the Bible. It's called the Psalms in the middle. Some of you know the Psalms, you know, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. That's one of the Psalms, it's one of the hymns in the middle of the Bible. And one of the Psalms, Psalm 32, uses that phrase, and it's said by somebody who is dreaming of a better reality. He's dreaming with a world where injustice and brokenness has come to an end. He's dreaming of a world where he wasn't quite so rotten. He's dreaming of a world where God comes and does something about it. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, he says, uh, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false, and it immediately clicks with Nathaniel. That's my dream too. I want the hope of something better. I know that only God can fix it. And verse 48, he says, Look, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And you and I are thinking, he's on a park bench under a fig tree. What's that got to do with anything? Well, there's the promise in one of the books of the Bible, and he uses the image of a fig tree, Zechariah chapter 3. And again, it's a point where that fig tree is a picture of that dream coming true. So at the moment, you'll notice that it's, it's taken a lot of the images of hope from the older parts of the Bible and using it as a picture of what this guy's been hoping for and looking to. So no wonder back in 45, Philip says, we found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. We found the one you've been waiting for. Then Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, 
You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, it's a really rapid change, isn't it? One minute he's like, he's from speak. The next minute he's on his knees saying, surely this is the one. What changed in that minute? Two things. Number one, he came to see and make up his own mind. Number two, he met one who truly was who he said he was and could deliver on the deepest hopes and aspirations of his heart. That is who Jesus is. So in verse 50, I love this. Verse 50, Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Now whenever Jesus makes a promise, you want to sit up and listen. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, You've been hoping, you've been dreaming, you've been looking. You've been looking for a day when the world is restored. Now I am here, it's beginning to be ushered in. That's what the Bible teaches us, that now we're in a period where across the world, people are coming to Jesus to see him, having their sins forgiven, given a new start, and they'll be part of his gang for now and eternity. A point will come, says the Bible, where God will wrap up this world and say, enough. And all of those who've responded joyfully to Jesus will be part of that dream. And all those who've said, weird, don't want to know, pushed it away and said, I don't need this Jesus, will be left to deal with that themselves. And you don't want to be dealing with the Lord of the universe without Jesus as your saviour and protector. So how do we wrap this all up? I wanted to tell you about the last bit. We've run out of time. We won't do that. We'll look at that another time. I want to tell you that what we've heard about is what we're celebrating here today. Three people... And the name isn't Peter or Simon, isn't Rocky, isn't Philip, isn't Nathaniel, isn't John the Baptist. Their names are Tom, Amelia, and Catherine. And a point came in their life when somebody said to them, come and see, they started to look and got the shock of their lives. Because they heard that Jesus is true, and does make all the difference. They looked at Jesus, tested it, and whether it was fast or whether it was slow, their life has not been the same since. <coughs> Excuse me. Their mates may have thought they've lost the plot. Tom, do your mates reckon you've lost the plot? Amen, brother? Are you still the same Tom? He is. And yet Jesus has done something in his life. And I wonder now whether you realise what's happening whether you're somebody who's been coming to church for ages, or whether this is the first time you've decided to block up the courage, and we really appreciate your bravery, because it's really difficult coming down to something where you don't quite know what's going to happen. But do you realise what's happened? Tom, Amelia and Catherine are now saying back to you, to all of us, come and see. Maybe come and see for the first time. Maybe come and see for the umpteenth time. Can I ask you, are you doing it? Get tomorrow, right now, are you coming and seeing who Jesus is? That he's the Lamb of God, which means you can have pardon. That means he's the, he's the rescuer. And he's the Lord. He's the gracious Saviour who calls the most unlikely of people. He's the one who knows you inside out and is prepared to rename you and say, you're going to see greater things than this. I do hope that is what you're experiencing. We're going to sing a song now. A 
talks a little bit about that. I wonder whether the musicians can get up here. Uh, two things are going to happen during this song. The first one is there's going to be a bit of frenetic activity while we call, get this pool ready and bring the, teen, uh, the kids back in. I wonder, Kosh, whether you could do that when we start playing. So the kids will come back in. Uh, so that will start happening. But the other thing I want you to do is notice what we're singing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Now I don't know where you are in the process of thinking that through. For some of you in here, that's something you want to sing really loudly because it's been your experience. For others of you, you're open to the possibility but you know you're not quite there yet. So as it's sung, dare to do what I did as a teenage lad and say, God, if this is true, and if you are real, would you help me to know what I've got to know and do what I've got to do? You can pray that even as you sing, because the God of the universe loves us. So he loves it when we respond to his love of us. Right, let's stand together and we'll sing this one. <laughs> 